Uh, last week we talked about uh, you know the the government and kind of you know continuing to build on that. Today we're going to talk about justice and society, and the plan is next week to finish it up by talking about justice and change. But you know what does it look like to have a just society? Um, true or false? You and I, probably most everybody right now would like things to be a little more normal. Is this a true statement? I mean, if, if we could somehow just create that this morning, uh, we would do that. Um, I think also at the same time, even in a time of weirdness, that uh, if we're honest, all of us are I think all of us, most of us, I think the average American wants justice. You think this is true? I think the average American wants people to be treated right, wants people to be treated fairly. I know there's exceptions to this. I mean, regardless of skin color and those kind of things. I mean, I think we want things to be just. I think we want the government to treat people justly. I think we want to see consistency when it comes to the application of COVID restrictions. Right? I mean, I, I think if you know, people can protest in March, churches should be able to have church services. Yeah, that just seems fair to me. That seems just to me. I, I think uh, uh, police officers who do wrong should be uh, prosecuted, but I also think that they shouldn't be prosecuted in the court of public opinion without due process. And both of those things are just. I don't think we're going to achieve justice by rioting and looting and those kind of things. Uh, you know, we want justice. And obviously, uh, you know, we live in a society where there is un injustice, but uh, many people around the world would give everything they have had to come here because there's so much more justice here than wherever they are. And, and, and that's, that's reality. But the reality is also this, and this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this series. We long for justice because we're created in the image of God, but at the same time, because that image is marred and distorted because of original sin and because of our depravity, we also create injustice. There's always going to be oppression and injustice until King Jesus returns to make everything right. But that still doesn't mean, though, that we as the people of God should not be a part of seeking and striving to create just societies uh, until then. But let me remind us of this, and I think this is important as we're in this election season. You know, we've had the conventions and just a little more than two months away from the election now. Can I just remind us that we're not in a flesh and blood battle ultimately? Our enemies and opponents are not people who disagree with us, are not people of a different political party, not people of a different uh, persuasion on things. And so, you know, we, we need to look up. We need to look at the spiritual, the unseen that's behind what's actually going on in the world. I would just remind us of what Ephesians 6, 12 says. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're in a spiritual battle. And as Satan works, part of the way that he works is through ideas, philosophies, ideologies. Really, ultimately, we're in a battle of truth and falsehood. And you know, when we got back into Ephesians, we're going to do a series to finish it up on spiritual warfare. But let me remind us of this, what Colossians 2, 8 and 9 says. It says, beware lest anyone cheat you and, and, and the word cheat literally means to kidnap. Don't get spiritually kidnapped through philosophy and empty deceit. And basically what it's saying through a worldly man-made philosophy, worldly man-made ideas uh, that, are, that are deceptive according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So basically, there's knowledge, there's wisdom that lines up with Jesus and his truth, and then there's everything else, basically. That would be a worldly philosophy of deception. Ideas are powerful. Ideas have consequences. 
So as we talk about justice and we talk about a just society, I feel like in just kind of introducing this message before we actually move into the text, I feel like I need to talk a little bit about the social justice movement. And um, really what I believe, I believe we need social justice. I would just define it differently than the social justice movement. Um, you know, when I talk about justice, I'm talking about God's justice. I'm talking about biblical uh, justice, which we defined earlier in this series as righteousness, action which is in accord with moral and ethical norms. And so that means then, and, and this is really important to, to understand from a biblical perspective, as Vody Bauckham says, anything that's unjust is sin because it's unrighteous. It's immoral. It's treating another person in the wrong uh, way. So living out justice, living righteously, and of course, you know, Micah 6, 8 tells us to love mercy, do justly, walk humbly with our God. If we're living just lives, that's going to affect how we treat those around us. And so I believe we need God's justice applied in social settings. Uh, I don't believe that uh, the social justice movement generally functions that way. Social justice theory is really Marxist because it has to do with the equality of outcome instead of the equality of opportunity. Uh, when, when you study social justice theory, here's basically what it's in, in, uh, involves. It involves identification of oppressed groups, meaning that basically everybody's either an oppressor or a victim. And you ever heard people talk about identity politics? Like, uh, how, are, how is a politician polling amongst redheaded, left-handed Alaskan women? That's identity politics. That's a silly example of it, but, but that's, that's the idea of it. Not where you stand with an individual, where you stand with, with a group. And so you identify oppressed groups, you assess group outcomes, not individual outcomes. And so what that could mean is this. Let's say that uh, a white man grows up in the poorest part of Appalachia, but he scratches, claws, uh, you know, works hard, becomes successful, becomes wealthy. Now he's a wealthy white man. Well, by definition of some of these groups, he's now an oppressor. Doesn't matter where he came from, doesn't matter if he got there justly, it's a issue of the group that he's a part of. He's a wealthy white man. And, and, and so then the, the next part of it is assigning blame for different outcomes. So basically you find out who to blame and then they become the oppressor. And so, and, and at the top of that food chain, you know, I, I want you to understand to a lot of people, if they listen to these messages, what I'm spewing is hate speech. Even though uh, I preached about as strongly as I know how to against racism, saying that it's evil and, and, and sinful, but if you take some of the other things uh, that I've said, if you take some of what I said last week, take what I'm saying right now, some of what I'm going to say today, and you take the fact that I am a white cisgender male, you say, what's cisgender? Uh, that means that uh, I have XY chromosomes and I actually identify as a male. And um, that puts me at the top of the oppressor food chain right there. And, uh, and so in a lot of people's minds, what I'm saying then would be hate speech. But then ultimately, it would be a redistribution of power and resources to correct the differences. Now, um, so I think the issue we can have as Bible-believing Christians then is maybe we want the same end goal of justice for all, but it's two different routes on how to get there. And even beyond that, and, and this is what I think it confuses a lot of people, when you study social, the social justice movement, there's three big areas, at least. I mean, there's some other areas, but I think there's three primary areas. So there's racial equality, 
which, um, you know, once again, it can't affirm any strong. Racism is sin. It's evil. Prejudice is wrong. Everybody is equal in the sight of God. And that's how we are to live. We are to live seeking racial reconciliation. And so, uh, you know, there can be agreement there. But then a second big area is feminism and women's rights. And of course, we're for women's rights. We're for women being treated properly and, and, and all these kind of things. But feminism and women's rights usually includes the right to abortion. And if you study um, the, the, the feminism movement right now, a lot of what feminists are advocating for, and of course, they wouldn't say it this way. I'm going to say it from a biblical perspective. They're advocating for the right to be as sexually immoral as men are. That's a lot of what feminism is about right now. But then the third big area is homosexual and transgender rights. And, you know, once again, we would advocate that everyone should be loved, everyone should be treated in the right way, that you have certain uh, rights as Americans, no matter, you know, how you identify yourself in these ways. But that still doesn't make it right from a moral or biblical or a spiritual sense. And so, you know, that's why, you know, there's this clashing of heads. And we have to understand that ideas matter, that ideas are important. So what does all of this then have to do with the book of Judges? What, what does the book of Judges have to do uh, with our society uh, today? Well, uh, let me just read this to you. It's adapted from Warren Wearsby, and uh, you tell me then, okay? Uh, judge says travelers no longer safe on highway. Family feud leaves 69 brothers dead. Powerful government leader caught in immorality. A mob gang rapes a woman, and then someone dismembers her and mails her remains around the country, which leads to a civil war. Girls at a party are kidnapped and forced to marry strangers. Now, if you put those five headlines together and I ask you where you think they came from, you might say the National Enquirer or something like that. That's kind of what it sounds like. But that's actually a synopsis. It's not everything. That's just a few of the, I started to say highlights, maybe lowlights is a better word, of uh, the, the anarchy and just the spiritual situation that the people of God, the nation of Israel, found itself in at this point. Now, if you remember the Old Testament, you know, Joshua was about them, uh, you know, conquering the land. God had given them the promised land. They were about to conquer it. Uh, then they were supposed to settle it. And part of what they were supposed to do was to drive out the pagans, establish the worship of Yahweh, not intermingle with them, not begin to worship their gods, but they failed to obey the Lord. They became idolaters. And um, the book ends with uh, these words, with this statement, it's actually the second time that it's stated in uh, the book, but it ends by saying in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In Israel, there was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I think the second half of that phrase in a lot of ways, describes our society today. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. I mean, not literally everyone, but isn't that kind of what we're taught? And we're, and we're going to get into that. And so there's another place in the book of Judges that, that, that this sentence is used. I mean, the first part of it is in there, I think, about five times, the first half of it. But the exact sentence is used also in chapter 17. And we're going to look at chapter 17 as just kind of a representative example of uh, what's going on in the book of Judges and because I think it applies to us today. And so uh, here's what, we're, what I'm going to try to point out to you today. I'm going to try to explain to you how to build an unjust society because that's what was going on there. I think that's what's going on now, and how do we get there? And, and, and so uh, I'm stating it in the negative because the book is so negative, right? I've read the book of Judges several times this past week, and I'm telling you, it's depressing. 
It's kind of like watching the news today, but it's where we are and it's where they were. And obviously, I mean, I did this with a message about family back in the Broken series on Father's Day and, and, and kind of saying how to build an unjust society. Really what I'm trying to do is to try to help us to do the opposite of it. But, um, you know, I, I want us to kind of see their problems then through that, see our problems and see hopefully how we can make some changes. So let's read Judges chapter uh, 17. It's not, it's not very long. And then uh, I want to point out some of these steps to building an unjust society. So it says here, now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken away from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here's the silver with me, I took it. And so he's saying, I stole all this from you, okay? And, um, and, and then she says, um, you're blessed of the Lord, my son. And, and so it says, so when he had returned from uh, the 1,100, when he returned the 1,100 shekel, shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Then he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. So mom's making an idol for him. What a tolerant uh, mom, right? Um, it says, then the man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. You understand that was problematic. Everybody couldn't go around appointing their own priest, you know. Uh, it, it wasn't like create your own religion. It wasn't like build a religion, like build a bear or something like that. But once again, I think that's what a lot of people want to do uh, today. And here's that verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite, and he was staying there. Not really where he was supposed to be, but, uh, you know, Levites were kind of like the worship leaders, assistant to the priests, uh, that kind of thing. And so, it says, the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place, and, and maybe, you know, the people weren't supporting them like they were supposed to. And it says, and he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And, and, and Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. And so Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year and a suit of clothes and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. And then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite. And you understand, he had no standing or authority to do this. The young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. And then that was what he says. Now, I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. So he's done everything. He's an idolater. He's done something he's not authorized to do. He's appointed his own priest, but... God's going to be good to me. It's almost like, uh, you know, this, this priest is like a religious good luck charm for him. But uh, what, what you find, if, you read, if, you, if we read on here into chapter 18, is basically uh, this Levite got a better offer. And so he left this guy and he went with uh, the tribe of Dan uh, to be their priest because he was a hireling. And that's what hirelings do. They go where the, the money is, even relig religious hirelings. So out of this, how do we build an unjust society? Okay, I want to show you four ways, four steps. Number one, I want to point out the absence of righteous leadership. What did that verse say? There was no king in Israel. Now, we're going to come back to that at the end because there's really something deeper there. But when you read the story of the book, what's going on in the book of Judges, basically there's like a, a cycle here that happens about seven times through the course of the book. The people sin, they rebel against God, they walk away uh, from God. 
They get oppressed, uh, they cry out to God, and uh, God gives them a, a, a judge, a deliverer, a, 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 a leader to come in and you know, take them away from their oppression. Things get better, and then they move away from the Lord again, kind of uh, just the same cycle over and over again. But part of their problem that they were experiencing was the absence of righteous leadership. Listen, John Maxwell's right when he says everything rises and falls on leadership. Businesses, communities, churches, um, states, countries, the world. Everything rises and falls on, on leadership. And I'm not going to say much about this because we talked about government last week. And I'm not just talking about government when, we, when I talk about leadership. I'm talking about in every sphere of life. But if things are going to work in the way that they are supposed to, we need the right kind of leadership. And let's show you a few verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 23. It says, much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for lack of justice, there's waste. And, and this is a verse that's really hit me as I've studied during this series. And, 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 and this is why I want to share it with you. It points out two things here. It's, it's using poverty, basically, as, as a specific example, and, but I think it can be applied a little bit across the board. There's, there's two parts to what it's saying here. It says, much food is in the fallow ground of the poor. In other words, some people are poor because of a lack of personal responsibility, because of laziness, because of a lack of work ethic. But it also says, and for lack of justice, there is waste. There are people who are poor around the world because they live in, in, in countries and governments and, and, and structures and systems where it's, it's just not getting to them. I mean, there's a lot of aid that's wasted around the world because of corrupt uh, systems and structures where people aren't being helped uh, like they should. You know, when we go to Honduras and we see the poverty there, part of what's frustrating about it is their country has a lot of natural resources, but a lot of what undoes that is just the lack of, uh, of government infrastructure, corruption, those kind of things. And so I just point that out to say generally, when we address the problems around us, we need to adopt both and thinking, not either or thinking. And, and, and really, that's why uh, that some of this series, maybe, if, especially if you just hear parts of it, will confuse you because it's like one time maybe I'm saying one thing, one time I'm maybe saying another thing. But the problem is we think too much either or instead of both and, and we need to hold some things in tension. And one of the things that we need to hold in tension is there are systemic issues, and there's also the issue of personal responsibility, which we're going to get to in a minute. But notice what else the Bible says in Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 16, 12, it's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And unrighteous, unrighteous leadership will bring injustice to a society. Think of every uh, dictator who's ever lived. But think of bad laws. Think of bad decisions. I mean, folks, this is as practical as where we live. Um, I mean, the, the governor of Wisconsin not bringing in the National Guard uh, to quell things on the first night cost some people their businesses. I mean, I read an article yesterday about a man whose business was destroyed by looters, been their family business for 42 years. It could have been stopped, but we have to be politically correct. Leadership is vital. So the absence of righteous leadership is going to lead to an unjust society, but conversely, the presence of righteous leadership will lead to a just society. But number two, and I think biblically, this is always the primary issue. If you want to build an unjust society, take away personal responsibility. Lack of personal responsibility will always lead to injustice, while personal responsibility will lead to justice. What, what did that verse say? It said, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If everyone does what's right in their own eyes, how are you ever going to have justice? 
I mean, how are people going to get along? How are things going to thrive? The Bible teaches that no matter what our background is, no matter what our circumstances are, we're still responsible for our own choices. Listen, I'm not saying there's not oppression. I'm not saying that people are not in really bad circumstances, but we still have the power of choice, and we also have the reality of Romans 14, 12, that we're going to have to answer to God, give personal account for the choices that we make. But, you know, there's a whole chapter in the Old Testament about personal responsibility. It's, it's Ezekiel uh, chapter 18. And I, I want us to read part of it. It says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? In other words, basically they were saying, It's not our fault. It's our ancestors' fault. It's our parents' fault. It's what they did. It says, as I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. Notice this, the soul who sins shall die. We're all personally accountable to God and to others for our actions. Listen, there is no way to have justice apart from that. To me, that's the issue with the social justice movement. Listen, once again, I'm not saying there's not oppression. I'm not saying there's not systemic things that need to be dealt with and, and, and corrected. But if everybody's either a, an oppressor or a victim, and there's real victims, I'm not saying that again, but if that's how everybody is classified, how do we ever take personal responsibility? And if, we, and if we don't take personal responsibility, how are we actually going to change anything? If, if we go farther down here, maybe let's, let's move to verse 10. And he, he gives a couple of examples. He says, if, if he, and, and, and he's talking about uh, a, a righteous man. He says, if, if a righteous man begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but is eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he is oppressed, the poor and the needy, robbed by violence. And, and you see how even the sins he lists here, some of them are more personal. Some of them involve others. Justice is personal. It's societal. He says, robbed by violence not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols or committed abomination. If he has exacted uh, usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His uh, blood shall be on him. If however he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not uh, eaten on the mountains nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone nor withheld a pledge nor robbed by violence but he has given the bread to the hungry and, and covered the naked with clothing who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase but has executed my judgments and walked in my statues. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. In other words, a righteous father can have an unrighteous son. The unrighteous son is responsible for his behavior but this unrighteous son can turn out to be righteous because you don't have to live in your past. You can make choices. You can choose to be different. If we could go uh, to the end of the chapter in, in, in verse 30, and, and this is basically uh, God's invitation to us. He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. Lord God, therefore, turn and live. And so he's telling us to take personal responsibility for our own lives. Well, um, you know, what keeps us from doing this? Well, there's four things I want to point out here, and I, and I think they fit with this phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, but I think they also speak to our society today. If, if we're going to take personal responsibility, we're going to have to take justice. I think the first thing we have to realize is we can't have our own truth. We can't have our own truth. 
Uh, do you understand, uh, anytime somebody says, this is my truth, when you put the word my in front of truth, you might as well not say truth at that point. Because if something's true, it's not my truth or your truth, it's just true. It's what corresponds to reality. And I really think that a lot of the foundation of where we are as a society today is because ideas move actions. And it's ideas of the last few decades, the primary one, I think, being that everything is relative, nothing is absolute. Of course, nobody really believes that because if somebody really believes that, you can't actually call anything wrong because all I have to say is it's my truth, right? And then it should be okay, but of course it's not. Well, you can't have your own truth, but it's convenient because if you can have your own truth, you can justify what you do and you can condemn what other people do. And of course, flowing out of that is the idea that we can't then decide what's right and wrong. Because if truth is relative, morals are situational. There's no absolute. You see, a lot of what I've been saying this series, we want justice. It goes back to the law of God. You know, pointed out, that's what Martin Luther King, that was what he appealed to. You know, ultimately the moral law of God. And apart from the moral law of God, there is no actual basis for right and wrong. And if there's no actual basis for right and wrong, how do you get your right? How do you get your truth? Protest. Unrest. Ultimately, you force it on people. Ideas have consequences. I mean, think about it. I mean, this has led us as a country to the place of saying that even though we know biologically there's XX and XY chromosomes that make you a male or a female, you can identify as one of dozens of other genders. I mean, we can't even state the opposite or the, the obvious that certain people biologically have been made a certain way. And people accept that. I mean, I, I, and I, I'm not going to say where it came from because I don't want to give the woman a platform. And um, you, you may say, well, that's extreme. And it, and it probably is. But um, the extreme eventually becomes the normal. Amen. Do you understand that? Transgenderism would have been extreme not a real long time ago. But uh, there's a Canadian lady who tweeted that men should admit to rapes, say they did it, even if they are falsely accused because women have been an oppressed group. Now, is there justice in that? Well, wait, hang on. Depends on how you define justice. If justice is about the group instead of the individual, if, if justice isn't about someone's action, is, is, if it's about oppressors and victims, not, I mean, obviously, you know, if a man has raped a woman, he's an oppressor, she's a victim, he ought to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But a man who did nothing is guilty because a group has been oppressed? It depends on how you define it. Ideas have consequences. I'll read you a little bit of an article. A lady by the name of Vicki Osterweil said, Looting strikes at the heart of property, of whiteness, and of the police. It gets to the very root of the way these three things are interconnected. And also it provides people with an imaginative, imaginative sense of freedom and pleasure and helps them imagine a world that could be. And I think that's a part of it that doesn't really get talked about. The, that riots and looting are experienced as sorts of joyous, as sort of joyous and liberatory. Um... She wrote a book called In Defense of Looting in April. 
And I mean, while she says she doesn't condone home invasions or the taking of property by force, she also says, but in terms of potential crimes that people can commit against the state, it's basically nonviolent. You're mass shoplifting. Most most stores are insured. It's just hurting insurance companies on some level. It's just money. It's just property. It's not actually hurting any people. He say, that's fringe. Is it? I mean, there might be some governors and mayors that need to read Romans 13 and what we looked at last week. And I think some of them might have read her book based on their actions. Ideas have consequences. We're, we're in a battle for truth. So we can't have our own truth we can't decide what's right and wrong. We can't do whatever we want to do. Now, but in a sense, I mean, maybe not literally anything we want to do, but haven't we been told, you do you? I mean, you know, <laughs> express yourself. Do what makes you happy. If something makes you happy, how could it be wrong? course, that's pretty much a slippery slope. You got to qualify that somehow. Or if killing people makes you happy, how could it be wrong? I mean, once again, if there's no absolutes, you can't be logically consistent and say anything is wrong. And part of the reason that I'm harping on this is because we have teenagers and you've been fed these lies. I mean, I know most of you, your parents have tried to teach you the right way, but if you listen to things in society at all, you've been fed these lies. Ideas have consequences. We can't do whatever we want to do. Why? Because we can't avoid the consequences of our choices. We reap what we sow. And the people in Israel did whatever was right in their own eyes and their society fell apart. And nothing's changed. Because what's true is still true, what's false is still false, what's right is still right, and what's wrong is still wrong, and that's never gonna change. The only way to live the life that God wants us to live, to be the country that God wants us to be, is if we're going to take personal responsibility. Number three, you want to ruin a society, you want to have an unjust society, let the family break down. Let the family break down. The family is the foundation of society. Much of the social justice movement wants to do away with the nuclear family. But, but it's interesting, the four things that I'm pointing out to you here, it's individual, it's family, it's government. We're going to get to the church at the end in, in, in a few minutes. These are the spheres that God has ordained. And that's what's under attack. Now, you say, you know, where does this come from? Well, you know, it comes from the passage, and this is just one example in, in Judges. But let me read Warren Wiersbe's description of what's going on in this chapter. Somebody stole 1,100 shekels of silver from grandmother and she pronounced a curse on the thief, not knowing that she was cursing her own son. It was the fear of the curse, not the fear of the Lord, that motivated the son to confess his crime and restore the money. Then grandmother joyfully neutralized the curse by blessing her son. In gratitude for the return of her money, she dedicated a part of the silver to the Lord and made an idol out of it. Her son added the new idol to his God collection in his sons whom Micah had consecrated as priest. Have you ever seen a family more spiritually and morally confused than this one? They managed to break almost all the Ten Commandments and yet not feel the least bit guilty uh, before the Lord. In fact, they thought they were serving the Lord by the bizarre things uh, they did. The son didn't honor his mother. Instead, he stole from her and then lied about it. First, he coveted the silver, and then he took it. According to Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. Then he lied about the whole enterprise until the curse scared him into confessing. Then he broke the fifth, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments. Thus, he broke the fifth, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments, and he broke the first and second commandments by having a shrine of false gods in his home. Uh, according to Proverbs 
Proverbs 38 and 9, when he stole the silver, he broke the third commandment and took the name of the Lord in vain. Breaking seven of the Ten Commandments without leaving your own home is quite an achievement. The man's mother broke the first two commandments by making an idol and encouraging her son to maintain a private shrine in his home. According to Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14, there was, but one, where there was to be but one place of worship in Israel, and the people were not permitted to have their own private shrines. Furthermore, Micah's mother didn't really deal with her son's sins. His character certainly didn't improve by the way she handled the matter but she was a corrupt person herself. So what else could she? What else could he expect? Now, Psalm one twenty seven one says, "Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it." But let me ask you a question: In that story, what's missing, or who's missing? Dad. And we don't know why. But I, I believe with all of my heart, and I believe statistics bear it out, that, um, like I said, I believe there's systemic issues, but the, I believe the two main issues that we're facing as a country are lack of personal responsibility and fatherlessness. Why would I say that? Well, here's some t- statistics. 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. Um, Seven out of every 10 youth that are housed in state-operated correctional facilities, including detention and residential treatment, come from a fatherless home. Um, Children from fatherless homes are twice as likely to drop out from school before graduating than children who have a father in their lives. Um, You know, about one in every three children, I should have said this first probably, about one in every three children in our country do not have access to their father. Um, girls who live in a fatherless home have a 100% higher risk of suffering from obesity than girls who have a fa- father present. Teen girls from fatherless homes are four times more likely to become mothers before the age uh, of 20. Um, in 2011, 44% of children in homes headed by a single mother were living in, pro- in poverty, while just 12% of children in married couple families were living in, 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 in poverty. Children who live in single-parent homes are more than two times more likely to commit suicide than children in a two-parent home. 75% of, uh, of rapists are motivated by displaced anger that is associated with feelings of abandon- abandonment that involves their father. Um, About 75% of adolescent patients treated in substance abuse facilities come from fatherless homes. Uh, About 85% of all children which exhibit some type of behavioral disorder come from a fatherless uh, home. Uh, About 90% of children who run away come from fatherless homes. About 63% of youth suicides involve fatherless homes. If you want to change the society... Start in the home. If you want to change the home, start with dad. Because that's God's plan. I mean, we believe that men and women are completely equal, but we believe that God has given men a role of leadership. And despite what people would say about me making that statement and whatever it makes me in the eyes of whatever people, look at the results. You see, truth is that which corresponds to reality. And as John Mark, John Mark Comer says, reality is what we bump into when things go wrong. Because we can't choose our own truth and we can't choose our own version of right and wrong and we can't escape the consequences of our choices. Am I saying this to condemn single parents? Absolutely not. I'm just saying we need to make our marriages a priority if we're married. Get counseling if you need to. We need to prioritize, prioritize raising our kids to know and follow Jesus. We need to minister to hurting families. Parents, we need to be on the lookout for our friends' kids that are going through hard times and be the hands and feet of Jesus with them. As a church, we need to do everything that we can to support and help and encourage and be there for single parents, especially single mom families. A society will not rise above family. Just study history. If the family falls apart, everything else is going to fall. Government can't do what families were designed to do. 
I think that's what's expected of teachers today. And they can't be super people, miracle workers. It starts in the home. But then, I think the last thing we need to talk about, because my point is not to point the finger at the world. It's something I've always taught here, something we believe in. So we don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We're supposed to act like Christians. But... I think if we're going to be honest about this, we have to look in the mirror and say that one of the keys to having a just society, I mean, if the Bible's true, if what, we're, if what we say we believe is true, that if, the, if Christians fail to live like professing Christians, it's going to contribute to there being an unjust society because it's going to create a spiritual void and a spiritual vacuum. If we want to have a just society... We have something to contribute to this. I don't have time to read the verses, but if you go back and look in, in Joshua chapter 2, basically what it says is while you know, Joshua and, and the other elders were around who had seen the mighty works of God, the people followed the Lord, but after Joshua died, it says, there arose a generation that did not know the Lord. That was their problem. They had conformed themselves to the pagans around them. They become idolaters instead of separating themselves, instead of being different. I mean, it's one of the things throughout the whole book. But, you know, we see it here in chapter 17. Wearsby says again, Micah not only had a private shrine, but he also ordained his own son to serve as priest. Certainly Micah knew that the Lord had appointed the family of Aaron to be the only priest in Israel. And if anybody outside of Aaron's family served as priest, they were to be killed. Then he doubled down on this Levite and did it again in clear disobedience to the word of God. He was creating his own religion. And aren't people doing that today, even professing Christians? You've got the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. You've got legalism which places salvation and living the Christian life, the burden on that, on what we do instead of uh, what Jesus has done for us. You have antinomianism, which basically says, you know, you can have Jesus and live however you want to at the same time, which many of the, quote, leading largest churches in the United States is really how they function if you really examine it. We have scandals among our leaders with Jerry Falwell Jr. being the latest example of that. Listen, we have, and, and, and this is a call for justice, I think is, that is right, the Me Too movement, but the church has been part of the problem there. How much abuse has there been in, in, in churches and cover up, which is just an abomination to God? How much apathetic, dead religion is there? But you know what, at the end of the day, we don't need to point our fingers at the world or at other Christians. We need to look in the mirror. Are we who God wants us to be? Are we where he wants us to be spiritually? You know, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I uh, will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and, and heal their land. And, and I think it's wrong to apply that to the United States. I think it needs to be applied to us as the church because it's talking about the people of God. Now, you may disagree with that, but I don't believe America is a Christian nation. I don't believe that's biblical, even though we have a Judeo-Christian heritage. There, I don't think there is any such thing as a uh, Christian nation. There's the kingdom of God expressed through the church. There's the kingdom of of darkness, that's what's in conflict. But it says, if my people who are called by my name, what's that mean? We make sure we're really saved, we're really a part of God's people. We humble ourselves, we pray, we seek the face of God, we repent. Each and every one of us is called to do that, to repent of sin and injustice in our lives, and then to look at how are we making a difference? How are we serving? How are we using our gifts? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we being the light of Jesus Christ? Because ultimately, and maybe this is just a setup where we're going to go next week. 
If we want a just society, we have to decide if we're going to be part of the problem or we're going to be part of the solution. To have a just society, you need righteous leadership. You need personal responsibility. You need strong, healthy, godly families. You need the church to be the church. We need us as professing Christians to really live in submission to, under the lordship of Christ, in the power of uh, the Holy Spirit. Because ultimately, if God is a just God, and if justice and righteousness can only be defined by him, justice can only come through him. And so let me close with this final thought. In 17.6, it says, there was no king in Israel. I just want to ask you a question. Uh, if you know the Bible, were they supposed to have a king? They weren't. I mean, if you read Judges 8.23, I think it was Gideon that said, the Lord is supposed to rule over us. There was supposed to be a theocracy. They asked for a king. Why'd they ask for a king? Well, part of it was because Eli's sons were corrupt and Samuel's sons were corrupt. It goes back to the family. But they asked for a king. God gave them Saul because sometimes God's discipline is saying yes to our prayers and him giving us what we really don't need to experience the consequences of it to provoke repentance. But ultimately, in his, God, in his grace, God gave them David. But you see, David was pointing ahead to the ultimate king, King Jesus. And you see, even uh, the book of Ruth, you know, Judges is so bleak and it's so horrible, but then you have Ruth, you have a Gentile being redeemed by Boaz, who's a picture of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. And the ultimate point of all of this is we're sinful, we're unjust, we mess things up, but Jesus is our great kinsman redeemer. Jesus is our uh, great king. And someday he is going to come and apply the victory that he won on the cross and he's gonna bring redemption and, and, and healing and forgiveness and transformation. He's going to rule and reign over all. But in the meantime, uh, we're called to surrender to him, to let him reign in our hearts, to walk with him, to let him give us his righteousness, to let him empower us to live righteous and just lives so that we can be used and so that we can make a difference in the world around us. That's what the church is called to just ask you, is Jesus your king? Is he ruling and reigning over you? Because the reality is we can't just snap our fingers and fix society, but we can let God change us. And it starts, and I think in a lot of ways, it ends there. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.